everyone. This is Chad, your host of Mission Daily. Welcome back. Today's episode, we are talking about the student loan debt crisis, which is a big, big problem in America. And joining us today is Rob Granado, the president of Common Bond. In today's episode, we talk about the work that Common Bond does to fight the student loan crisis. That means we talk about refinancing existing loans. They do a lot in this space. And whether it's refinancing existing loans or helping students make better decisions about potential schools, Common Bond and Rob are thinking deeply about these issues. Fast Company recently named Common Bond one of the most innovative companies in education, and Time named them one of the genius companies. Before this, Rob was the CEO and co-founder of RaiseWorks. He also has a variety of experiences abroad where he served in the Air Force. We talk about some of the leadership lessons that he learned there, as well as what he learned about operations and managing high-dollar equipment and teams. Rob also shares about how Common Bond is working with employers to create solutions to help wipe out their employees' student loans. This is an exciting space, and it's uh, an area that Common Bond is pioneering right now. We also talk about how Rob takes care of himself, which is vital to any CEO, any executive. And, you know, if you're a human, it's vital to you as well. So whether that's meditation, reading, habits, all of that, bedtime rituals, we discuss it on today's episode. Let's jump into it. Let's take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. Hey, I know running a business is not easy. One of the biggest challenges is HR with all of its details and regulations. So I chose Trinet. Their experts make everything from payroll to benefits and even compliance easier. And they offer full service solutions tailored to your industry and your company, whether your team is 10 people or a thousand. For me, that means less worry and more confidence that it's taken care of the right way. You and your employees deserve the same. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Rob. You heard all about him in the introduction, but I will let him take the microphone away. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, it's really good to be here, Chad. Thanks for having me. So this is exciting to talk with you today. So as a company, we've done, we had education month where we published a bunch of content on the state of education, whether it was in K through 12 or higher ed. And this is a topic that our listeners are really excited about, as well as how do we fix things like student debt and generally create better outcomes for an opportunity for anyone that wants to learn. So I'll let you take the mic away again here. But when people ask, what's your role and what do you do for work? How do you usually respond? Yeah, yeah. I describe myself generally as we're in the student loan solutions. So as you mentioned, you know, you kind of covered a couple of broad aspects of, of education finance. And I like to, when I describe what I do, when I describe what Common Bond does, bring together the fact that uh, student loans exist for what underneath it is a very positive outcome, generating access to, fi- to, to education, generating outcomes that we all believe come with you know, well-educated society. But there's no denying the fact that there's a, a negative underbelly to the way we've chosen to, to fund education. And, and student loans certainly has a very strong emotional connection to it. And so at, at Common Bond, we're in the student loan solutions world. We think about making student loans a less terrible experience along a few dimensions. We're a lender, so we do refinancing. We help people lower the cost of their existing student loans 
getting into a lower interest rate option, a lower monthly payment, basically getting credit for the credit that they've built up, the, the fact that they've made it through school, that they're employed, and can save significant money on the repayment of their student loans. We also help people as they're thinking about where to go to school, thinking about how to pay for school, providing resources and advice and a set of tools to help people think through how to pay for school, including which student loans to take out themselves. And then we're, we're really excited about a new kind of a, the early days of a new type of business where we're helping companies be part of the solution and helping companies help their employees pay down their student loans. So providing a student loan focused employee benefit, think of it like the 401k for student loans. We think that's a really exciting new frontier in helping with the student loan crisis. So that's kind of how we're focused as a company. I, you know, myself, I've been with Common Bond from the early days and we lost nationally about, about seven years ago. And so I feel you know, very closely connected to every aspect of the business from how we treat our customers and our customer care operations all the way to kind of the innovative and interesting ways that we actually fund our operations. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about your journey among many things is that you started at Common Bond as a general manager and rose up to become the COO and then president. And then, yeah, so I'm just really curious to get your take on how did you get your foot in the door with Common Bond and then how did you grow from there? Yeah. And anyone who knows anything about kind of early stage companies, the titles come and the titles go and they, they kind of mean very little, but it's, you know, certainly has been a really interesting and informative journey for me as I've kind of progressed through with as the company's grown and taken on different responsibilities. I came to Common Bond really kind of fortuitously. It was a cold email I sent to the founders. I had my introduction to to lending and to online lending was through a company called Raiseworks, where you know prior to Common Bond, we were focused on helping small businesses take out commercial loans in, in kind of a peer-to-peer way. So helping people invest in their local businesses through a kind of an online lending transaction. And that's what really got me excited about the power of, of alternate forms to lending and different ways to use data to make really smart underwriting decisions. And I had seen in the press and, and kind of noted that Common Bond had some early traction with, with investors and thought that was really interesting. Sent the cold email and connected with David Klein, the, the co-founder and Next thing you know, we were having brunch around the corner from their office in Brooklyn and really connected, kind of just felt the passion for the, for the solution, felt the passion for the, the hard work it was going to take to deliver on that solution and met the team and just really connected. It was, it was kind of an interesting early story. The office was in their apartment at the time. He and his co-founders kind of worked out of the, their apartment, but they set it up such that you, you wouldn't be able to tell that. So it was my first day and I came in and you never want to leave before your boss on your first day of work. So I'm sitting there just kind of grinding away and the hours keep turning and, and I realized that nobody's leaving because they actually sleep there. So I lost that showdown, but it was kind of a good story that, and a good uh, kind of reminder that we were going to really be gritty in those early days. Yeah. And I think early day experiences like that, where you can work shoulder to shoulder, there are great times to build culture and then to, you know, develop some commonalities, some shared inside jokes and all, mm-hmm. all of the great things that make startups like wonderful. So yeah. in those early days, how did you all think about building culture? And it probably wasn't intentional then, but how did culture get built? Yeah, you know, it, culture kind of evolves and it, it means different things in different contexts. And, you know, I think about the most important aspect of culture. And when I think about those early days, it's really shorthand for saying, let's all be on the same page. Um, right. Let's be on the same page around our levels of commitment to each other and to the business. Let's be on the same page about how we want to make decisions, how we you know, want the norms and just general environment of the office to be. And so 
when you're a small number of people and it's really easy to align and can communicate and, and get on the same page. There's just less kind of layers and communication links that have to be managed and kind of coordinated. But it was still from those early days, our offsites or our leadership team meetings were as much about, about norms and culture and what we wanted to expect from each other as they were about business strategy. And that was just kind of fundamental and intentional from the beginning. Right. And that's really kind of flowed through as, as we've grown employees, as, as our business has become increasingly complex and as our you know, business results have, have matured. It's fun sometimes to look back to those early notes from those, those offsites and see a lot of the kind of the core of what we were trying to be as a company just really persisted through it. Yeah, that is very cool to look back on. And I'm curious to know, before Common Bond, you have, uh, I think, really interesting business and life experience, kind of starting with your role in the Air Force. So when you were thinking as a young person, as a teenager about where you wanted to go in life and what you wanted to do, how did the Air Force get onto your radar and how did you make that decision to join? Yeah, so it was not something I had kind of planned out intentionally or, you know, I don't come from a military background and it really wasn't something that was on my radar. I attended a college fair and was just looking around for ways to pay for school and met with the ROTC folks. And at the time, and I think it might still be the case, you had this opportunity to take one year without any commitment for, for service and and just kind of, you know, try it out, so to speak. And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't I do that? And so I did that. I, I, I took on the ROTC scholarship, went to the University of North Carolina. And after my freshman year, they sent me to jump out of airplanes at the Air Force Academy for a few weeks. And I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. And as I looked about, you know, just looked around at, at my experience from that first year and, and thought about holistically what type of leadership training I was getting and practically how I was going to pay for school, it just made sense to, to keep going. And kind of went headfirst into it, really did enjoy that experience of getting, you know, a really strong academic experience, but also learning about leadership, thinking about career development, even at an early age in college, went through the full program and commissioned and, and got really lucky to, to serve in some pretty awesome contexts. You know, it was kind of an interesting time to be in college. It straddled September 11th. I started school in, in 1999, where joining the military meant something very different from, from 2003 when I graduated. And so went into a world that looked very different from where I started from a college perspective, but that also created some really powerful context to continue to grow as a leader, to continue to, to serve with some amazing people and to do some pretty cool things around the world. Would you say that your experience in the Air Force and military where you know, you're managing things that are very important very large budgets in terms of, you know, how valuable the equipment is mm -hmm. and, you know, the roles and what that equipment is used for. Did that kind of like open up your eyes to maybe doing things at scale or did it help you think a little bit bigger? How did that experience kind of shape your worldview? It's a good point. It certainly did. And the context, whether it's the size of the budgets or the numbers or the kind of the gravitas of what you're, you know, ultimately there to accomplish and what the mission is really does kind of set the stage, I think, in two important ways that have stayed with me. One is a notion of persistence and resilience, really. When you're in, a, in an environment where the stakes are, are that high and that real, it's just a matter of how we're going to figure something out, not a matter of if we're going to figure something out. And so you, you kind of jump in with that level of commitment. You open up doors to solve problems creatively. 
that certainly stuck with me. And the second is just an element of service. You know, you can't really wrap your head around the scale of, of the impact that you're having, you know, in the service, whether it's the dollar figures or, you know, more importantly, the lives and the kind of the national objectives that are at stake. And so you just elevate to a sense of um, that goes beyond your own personal ambitions, your own personal aspirations. You be, you kind of subordinate that to that of a team and that of a, of a nation. And that's really helpful in team building in thinking about kind of how to put your own talents to best use in an organization. Sure. And as you're moving forward, you get out of the Air Force, you work at a variety of different roles. And as you get closer to your, the role you have now at Common Bond, when and what experiences did you have that kind of alerted you to the student debt crisis? And maybe, you know, what experiences got you passionate about education in general? You know, despite having an ROTC scholarship that covered my undergraduate studies, there's still a gap for books and cost of living. And despite, you know, an undergraduate education that by all accounts was extremely high value in terms of, you know, quality versus cost. I went back to grad school and had some of the GI Bill to help with that. Even with all that support, I still had significant and still to this day, significant student loan debt. And so the feeling was personal just from an impact and and an economic perspective. And then it goes beyond economics too. The system is just unnecessarily complex. It's convoluted in terms of where the incentives lie and the service that's provided by the incumbents has just felt broken. And as, as a problem solver, as I kind of stepped out into entrepreneurship and with my first role in alternative lending and understanding kind of how to bring a product to market, the size and scope of the student loan problem and this kind of visceral feeling that it was broken just was a very exciting and appealing, appealing environment to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to solve that problem. The interesting thing about the student loan problem, it's kind of a problem with, without a really clear villain, so to speak. You know, there's enough blame to, to cast around to a number of dynamics and whether it's the institutions themselves and the cost of education and kind of running away or the incentives that institutions have from free-flowing, seemingly uncapped you know, government funding with ambiguous incentives or whether it's our social values where going to college feels like a, an end in itself and something you just have to do and it's in a, kind of an emotional attachment to this outcome versus more of the way someone who is purchasing a consumer good would approach, you know, the purchase they were making in terms of requiring outcomes and things like that. All those things come together to to a pretty dire situation for folks. And so so that kind of factors into it. You know, Common Bond has a social promise. So we provide a scholarship to a student in need for every degree that we fully fund through a partner of ours, Pencils of Promise. What I really like about that and what I like about the aspect of solving this problem is as a for-profit business, we've recognized there's enough kind of broken in this existing system to generate, not just to fix it, but to generate a nice profit in the process and to align those incentives with some social outcomes or social promise and to kind of match those things up to where the better we are at our job, the more just positive impact we're having in the world. So that's those really are cool. kind of the dynamics, you know, student loans touch every aspect of the country. So, you know, being in an industry that is that broad and its impact is appealing as well. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think, you know, it's been said a rising tide lifts all boats and we yeah. can't just fix education here without fixing 
education more broadly, like it's, it's generally, it's when education is done right, it's better that we're all more educated. So that's exciting to lend a hand to the others on the outside that might not have as much opportunity there. When it comes to other initiatives at the company, what is really exciting right now that you can share or whether it's a product launch or, you know, maybe iterating your process for underwriting, what work are you doing right now that you think is going to have a big impact in, you know, this maybe next quarter or next year? So I alluded to it a bit. We've got a solution that we provide to companies. It's a student loan benefit. We think employers have a really interesting role to play to be part of the solution. You know, after all, people are pursuing education in large part to be valuable to a future employer or, you know, at least in some part to, to generate income through that relationship. And so the employer relationship, we think, is a really powerful way to, to be part of how students, how graduates repay their student loans. So we built a, a suite of products to support that. Some really cool stuff where if an employer has a 401k match program, but you still have a mountain of student debt such that you're not able to budget for your own 401k contribution, the employer can contribute to your 401k in an equal amount to your student loan payment. So you just keep paying your student loan and you watch your 401k grow. These are all really interesting products we've found significant demand for. Unfortunately, the big headwind is those benefits are not, don't have favorable tax treatment the same way a 401k contribution would. So we're working very closely with partners across the industry to support legislation that would change that. We have bills with significant momentum in both houses of Congress with broad bipartisan sponsorship that would change that treatment. And we think just create a, a totally new relationship with employers and, and their support of, of student loan repayment. So that's super exciting. I wouldn't hold my breath for this year. It's an election year. It's a little bit tricky to handicap those types of things going through, but certainly in the next, let's call it 12 to 18 months, we think that's a really exciting development. We want to take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. When you're growing your business, you'll need to solve all kinds of HR challenges. And you'll need Trinet. Trinet gives you expert advice on HR compliance, attracting top talent, and how to efficiently outsource your HR. Get started now by checking out Trinet's free e-guides at trinet.com slash e-guide to learn more about how to tackle these issues. Now, let's jump back into today's episode. Yeah, that definitely feels like one that's inevitable at a certain point, especially there are a lot of different, whether they're like income share agreement coalitions and all these different coalitions being formed to help educate elected leaders that I think are starting to make some progress in in that area. When it comes to things like income share agreements or whether they're coding boot camps out there or anything that kind of builds itself as like a new thing in education, is there anything exciting you see on the horizon that could really shake things up a bit? They're always very interesting. And we evaluated the ISA specifically in, in the early days. They become more complex and kind of challenging when you, when you really crack them open. You know, when you think about verifying income on an annual basis, when you think about really capping right. someone's upside, when you think about kind of just the psychology of having a portion of your income growth already spoken for, we found that was challenging on the borrower side, as well as difficult to fund on the, the investor side. So that, that's one of the interesting aspects of this, this model is we've got 
you know, customers who, who were trying to lower the cost of their education. And then we created really creative ways to do that without being a bank ourselves. And so we're providing a, an investment return to a certain set of investors to provide that capital. So yeah, ISA has become a little bit challenging in that regard. I do think in terms of a consumer value perspective, these, these alternative approaches to the traditional four-year degree are, are really exciting. I think there will be a market to, to finance those programs if they continue to deliver outcomes that they claim to do. I think, I think you'll also yeah, see in higher education, increased accountability for outcomes. And those outcomes can be measured in a number of different ways, not necessarily purely income generation or, or financially. But universities and institutions that are providing a service for the dollars that they're taking in should be held accountable to clear standards, not just by the consumer, but by the whole system. Yeah, I think that as we move forward to an era where there's crystal clear, here's our results, here's what you're buying, it's going to lead to students being able to make some much better decisions and based on data instead of just hopes, intuitions, and maybe some anecdotal conversations. So that's yeah, you know, exciting it's, it's, time. for being such a large five to six figure purchase. It's treated so differently than any other purchase we would make as, as a consumer. And I think that has to do with just the emotions that are wrapped up in, into it. It's, it's unclear that you as a, a student or a student's family have any leverage in the situation. The reality exactly. is we help high school seniors negotiate their tuition, something not many people realize you can do. But when, when you think about it as a business transaction, why wouldn't you be able to, to negotiate that? Right. And I think this leads us in an interesting cultural direction, which is, you know, why is it considered taboo to ask about this purchase when it's such a large decision? And many reasons, I think. But, and I guess the question here is, I'm always curious when I talk with people, it sounds like a lot of younger people or people who are in school or thinking about going back are treating it as an an insurance product. Um, Hmm. They're kind of worried about the overall market or they think that this is going to be like some type of, you know, floor or safety net for them. What's your take on when you talk with people, are many people treating it like an insurance product or do you feel like people are really starting to think about this more as as an investment in their future? I'd like to say it's tilting towards the latter. I think it's going to take a a long time for that shift to happen. I I think a couple of thoughts just come to mind. When I went back to grad school, I I certainly had that moment of, okay, if I get this certain degree, I'll I'll be able to feel like I've made it. I'll have arrived and it'll just be a stamp of, uh, of certain approval. And I think I've come to very much appreciate more of a growth mindset than a kind of a fixed mindset in that you notice when you're in school, the people who get the most out of it are the, are the ones who treat it as a learning experience. And I think institutions, schools themselves are somewhat banking on that behavior. They may not have to provide the type of product or the outcomes, but just having the, the seal itself, the conferring of the degree and what it means is enough for people to fork over significant portions of money. I think it's going to change. I think we see it in some of the professional programs like like business schools and potentially others, but it's, it's probably a long, long boat to turn around. And do you see Common Bond as kind of a marketplace where you have students and then you have investors or is, you know, is it a three-sided marketplace where you have students, investors, and the institutions that you partner with or how does that work? Yeah. So the two different types of lending that we do, we, we do provide a, a student loan product for students while they're in school. 
we don't partner officially with the schools in the loan itself. We, we do partner with the financial aid offices to be a part of their approved embedded lending lists and generally to, to partner with them to have presence on, on campus. And so the, the loan itself is a more of a two-party type of environment where we're working on behalf of our borrowers to get the best interest rate possible to considering all the factors you'd have to consider in a, in a credit product. And then we're working with our investor partners who are providing the capital to provide a, the right risk-adjusted return so that they have confidence in, in the program and continue to fund and continue to provide capital so, so that we can help more people. On the refinancing side, it's, it's very similar. So we help people who have already graduated, who have already earned their degree and are in the workforce, lower their interest rate even further. It's a similar value pie that we're looking to share, helping people lower their interest costs, lower their monthly payments, while also providing an attractive return to our investor partners. And when it comes to your investor partners, what's the maybe typical profile or what type of investors are you looking for to partner with? So this is a, it was actually been an interesting development and kind of in, in some in thinking about this conversation, I talked about a little bit about before Common Bond and, and my time at RaiseWorks that it wasn't clear, you know, call it seven, eight years ago that there would be institutional appetite for this type of alternative lending product. And the initial models were, we're more peer-to-peer or alumni helping existing students. And, and that's still very attractive and, and something that I think for a lot of reasons it, we'd love to pursue down the road. I think what we've, we've learned is there's significant interest in larger institutions with scale um, kind of participating in this, which has been great for companies like us because it expands how many people we can help and, and the impact that we can help. So so the types of investors that, that we work with are insurance companies, pension funds, community banks, hedge funds in cases, those types of institutions who, who are looking to make an allocation into the type of asset that a student loan represents. Rob, shifting gears a bit, when you're thinking about the lessons learned throughout your career, whether that's at the Air Force or in school at Columbia or at Common Bond or RaiseWorks, what are some of the lessons that stand out? And I think an interesting one to start with would be, what is one of the harshest business lessons that you've uh, ever learned? (laughs) Ah, that's good. So you have to be careful of being, of being convincing. You can be in positions of of influence and particularly if you, you know, so I, I can get excited about ideas. I can get particularly excited about my own ideas. You have to be careful about how convincing you can be of your own ideas and really embrace contrarian views from curious people who can understand where you're coming from and not, not kind of discourage you as a leader or kind of dampen any enthusiasm, but to present the worst case scenario or present alternatives so that you can be you know, clear-eyed in your decision-making. There's a quote, I, I don't know who said it, but you know, kind of one of my biggest fears is being very compelling and just being wrong. And, um, and, getting, and getting kind of significant resources in an organization organized around what ultimately isn't an idea that's going to work. Um, Power of persuasion is a double-edged sword, for sure. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it can, you, know, you can get in self-reinforcing loops. I think, and there are a couple of product feature decisions like that over the years. You know, in retrospect, I've kind of said, oh, and I, 
And I, we should have had a more spirited debate about this. So surround yourself from, with people that are going to get excited about your ideas in the same way that you do, but are going to have a skeptical lens as well to, to kind of challenge you. I think that's really valuable. You've really got to take care of yourself. There's kind of a self-effacing or there's a, a sacrifice culture around whether it be sleep or hours worked and, and things like that. And there's no question it's going to take Without a lot out. of work. If you're not taking care of your mind, your body, if you're not sleeping, you're definitely making bad decisions. And so you've got to take care of the hardware and the software that makes those decisions. Two, three years ago, a family member gave me Headspace as a birthday present, basically was saying, hey, you need to take care of yourself. And it was, it was the best gift I've ever received. And so I've kind of evolved from that into a couple of other meditation practices that, that have been extremely helpful for me. Very cool. So how did your start using Headspace and then starting to do maybe your own meditation and creating your own practice? Uh, mm -hmm. What did that look like? And what does that practice look like today? So it started with just the Headspace app. They, they do a nice job creating some, some social proof and some little things here and there that help you create a habit. And it was just, you know, 10 minutes every day. And I connected to it on a intellectual level as kind of an experiment and just digging into uh, how my brain works, how thoughts work, things like that. I then started just listening to a couple of guided meditations online. Tara Brock has a, has a nice one that was kind of a, a lightweight, something I could do every day. Now, my favorite app is Waking Up, the Sam Harris app, which I think just takes it to another level of kind of really digging into, not to completely nerd out on this, but really digging into the, to the nature of consciousness and uh, some, some really fun content there. So it's 10 minutes every day. I find if I do it in the morning, another key I, I found is waking up early is kind of the single biggest indicator of whether or not I'm going to have a good day. So in order to do that and to get enough sleep, it's basically I've got to get to bed on time. If, if I'm up early, that's really the only way I have a shot at balancing things. Very cool. Yeah. Always feel free to nerd away here. That's uh, you're, you're safe <laughs> amongst fellow nerds. I and appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And when it comes to the evening time, getting to bed, yeah. do you have a pre-bedtime ritual or is there anything you do? Do you set an alarm? How do you make sure that's consistent? So I'm not good at it, but here's what I've started doing. I've set a goal to brush my teeth right after dinner. As I've found is what keeps me up later at night than I should be is just like this blocker around the logistics of going to bed. So sure. I'll, I knock that out. I'll likely, I'll just probably eat less at night and then have a better chance of, of getting in bed. I've also just come, just started to recognize that with young kids and with just a very busy schedule, sometimes you get to the end of the day and you just, you just feel like you owe it to yourself to, if I don't watch three episodes of The Office right now, I'm, I'm selling myself short and I'm, it's almost like out of resentment. It's like, I'm going to sit here and waste time. Yeah, and so I, just just being aware of that's been helpful because I realized going to bed early is actually an indulgence and kind of flipping the script a little bit and saying like, it's actually hard to go to bed early, but I'm, I feel so much better for it. So I almost kind of feel like that's, that's the guilty pleasure is just actually getting to bed. It hasn't worked yeah, yet, but you know, that's, that's the struggle. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think too, it's something where culturally we need to be a bit more open and accepting to the idea that getting to bed early or catching up on sleep is cool. And I think that making that cool again, or <laughs> making that something that 
is aspirational is the one cultural superpower you can kind of set for the whole business. Um, yeah. Because obviously like that's, what's going to enable everyone to bring their best selves to work and um, totally. yeah, avoid resentful binge watching of shows like we all want to do. So <laughs> sometimes I find myself too rested. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sometimes you feel like you're like just ahead of the world. You're like, I got too much sleep. I got, I, I, <laughs> this is too powerful. I got, I got to go stay up late. <laughs> When it feels like you have that surplus energy, whether you got more sleep or whatever it is, and you're thinking about like planning a trip or doing something fun outside of work, how do you kind of channel that? And what are you up to? I like to write. So I try to channel things through just free writing. In terms of what I'm up to, I used to play a lot of hockey. So I'd love to like, just get this my skates on and just skate. I've got two young kids that keep me really busy in a fun way. So just, you know, fun things to do. I've become a big NBA fan. I realized I like listening to other people talk about the NBA. So I've got a couple of podcasts. It's such a it's such an interesting sport. I love the uh, I just love the personalities and the kind of the dynamics of the league. So that that's been interesting. Unfortunately, I'm a Knicks fan, so it's it's kind of a labor of pain, patience and persistence. Though. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Part of my stoic practice is, is being there a Knicks fan. Yeah. That keeps me busy. And when you have younger people or people that are junior to you in business that are looking for advice, whether that's in at Common Bound or maybe just in general in the business world, what's some advice that you find yourself giving again and again? So I definitely lean into the take care of your mind, take care of your body thing, which, which we covered. I think it's important for people to know themselves really well and to not be afraid of kind of really leaning into your, to your strengths being aware of your weaknesses and I think having a, an approach that kind of really learns who you are, where you're in your flow state, what type of environments, what type of people, what type of challenges, and really leaning into that versus, you know, listing out a, a list of weaknesses to go address to that are perceived weaknesses. That's a couple of things there, there, you know, read, I think is, is an underappreciated Discipline as broad as that sounds. Really undervalued. I think so few people are actually doing it. It's yeah. never been easier to acquire stacks of books, but the amount of people I find who will finish one or, <laughs> you know, forget, at least get to halfway, even in the Bay Area, it's, uh, yeah. it seems like it's shrinking. But Yeah, totally. I, I've actually become a, a fan of rereading. So I feel Same. like sometimes we think there's, there's so much knowledge out there to go just kind of plow down. A good idea is a good idea, and classics are the are the classics. And I, I don't mean necessarily reading the classics, but I mean finding something that you really loved. There's no downside. In fact, you'll find new things going back and rereading it. It's kind of like going to a place that you love visiting. We, we feel like you've got to go to every new place around the world, but sometimes it's fun to go back to the places you know. Absolutely. And so I'm curious, was Nassim Taleb the inspiration for that or what kind of turned you on to rereading or just your own experience? So I've kept a, a log of notes, just notes and when something comes on. I, I do like audiobooks. I like Audible and I'll just reread those notes a lot of times and that, that'll push me back into, I think I just listened to Stumbling Into Happiness again. It's one of those, I think it's Dan Gilbert, one of those behavioral economics types of you know, behavioral psychology books. I've reread this is really fun book. It's not in the like self-help or anything like that. It's called Sum 40. It's this super creative 
perspective, 40 short stories on the afterlife. It just oh. kind of, it just kind of really stretches your brain in weird ways. So I've listened to that maybe three times. So that's been on my wish list for a while. David Eagleman, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely recommend that. It's, it's a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Any type of like speculative fiction or uh, kind of like sci-fi stories like that. I'm a huge fan of. Um, yeah. Any, yeah. Any other books that you reread or that you come back to again and again? There's a couple on, I think it's a guide to the good life, a Stoics journey, something like that. Yeah. Professor William uh, blanking on his last name. That's a great one. That's a great one. There's a book on, I think it's called Mindwise. Uh, the cool thing about rereading is you, you could kind of just jump into chapters too. Yeah, and find your favorite spots and yeah. Yeah, your favorite chapters. Rob, this has been awesome. Thank you for being generous with your time. And if it comes down to maybe a final thought or challenge for everyone listening out there, is there any final thought that you'd leave them with? Take care of each other. Be kind. Listen. There's a lot of narrative out there that we've never been more divided that we've things like that especially you know in this country in this political environment i think connect with people listen to people don't be you know check your own biases and be open-minded i know that's not the arc of the conversation but that's just what came to mind great advice and yes yeah, very timely for sure rob thanks for joining us and best of luck as you continue growing common bond i appreciate it Chad. it was fun thank you As a small business owner in ultra-competitive Silicon Valley, I used to worry about losing my top talent. I don't anymore, and here's why. I figured out how to offer access to robust benefits like a big company does, but I couldn't do it all on my own. That's where Trinet came in. Trinet helps tens of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses across the U.S. with HR, and they provide you with top-notch industry-tailored service for your HR needs. If you're building a business, you know you need a great team. Trinet is your team for HR. And when you choose Trinet, you'll help support independent media like Mission Daily. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.